explored the anatomy of an earthquake and I asked you two questions. First question was, can you control a natural earthquake? And the answer was, can you prevent a natural earthquake? No, you cannot control nor can you prevent an earthquake. And we came to the discovery that although we cannot prevent a natural earthquake from occurring, we can only mitigate its effects by building safer structures. We cannot stop a natural earthquake from occurring. But what we can do is we can build in such a way that can survive the earthquake. We can build in such a way that mitigates all of the harm and destruction that could happen. And we can do so by being wise builders. And here was the prophetic translation. There are certain things happening in our society that are beyond our control. However, God is still calling us to build a life that is earthquake proof. There are things that are happening in our society that we wish wouldn't happen, but they're still happening. There are things occurring every day. It's something new, and we have no ability to control what's happening around us. But what we do have is agency and what we are called to build. So I declared to you last Sunday that this is a season of building. And that some of you have been called by God to build something, but you've allowed the circumstances of society to halt what God told you to build. And you're waiting for the winds to change. You're waiting for the pandemic to be over. You're waiting to get to a place where things aren't as chaotic. You're waiting for that season of your life where there aren't trials and tribulations and troubles and obstacles and hindrances. And what I'm here to tell you is that those seasons never, ever really arrive because regardless of what stage of life you're in, there will always be struggle, struggle. There will always be trouble. There will always be struggle and there will always be a shaking. And certain things we cannot escape, but we have to learn how to endure. And so I, I suggested to you that all of us have something that we are called to build. And Jesus alluded to this, that we must become wise builders. Matthew chapter 7 verse 24 says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds beat against that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. I'm here to remind you that there is a rock that we are building on. And this rock is a solid foundation. And when it's all said and done, you need to know that that rock that we are building upon is solid. The the rock is Jesus Christ himself. The rock, it starts with your salvation. Yeah. You believe in him. That's the first place that in today's society and culture, people need to get saved. For real. For real. And there are some people that frequent church and they need to step into the realm of salvation. This is more than just religious effort, more than just denominationalism, more than just singing in the choir, performing a task. There needs to be true conversion. God is still converting hearts. And the root of all problems come down to the reality that there is sin in the world. We live in a fallen world, a broken society. And no matter what we do to try to fix it, we're going to mess it up even more. 
many well-meaning nonprofit organizations and institutions and governments, but their efforts always fail. Because ultimately, only God can deal with the soul. What we see in our culture is a soul issue, a spiritual issue. And in a society that's pushing more and more effort by man to try to make things better, we as believers have to stay anchored in the reality that ultimately when it's all said and done, people need to know Jesus, love Jesus, and live Jesus. And it starts with us, and we have to live a life that demonstrates that we trust in the Lord. But part of the reason why some people are not drawn to Christ because they don't see Christ living in us. But that's why we have to be strategic in this hour. Listen, we have to go through this pandemic, this pandemic differently than everybody else because somebody needs to see something in us that draws them to a right relationship with Jesus. And there's got to be a different swagger. There's got to be a different walk. There's got to be a different way that you're navigating this thing. There's got to be a peace in the midst of the storm. There's got to be a mindset that you're still going to do what God has called you to do. And while everybody else is driven by fear, you can't be driven by fear. And that's what we're going to deal with today. But you have to remember that ultimately when it's all said and done, we are building on a solid foundation. We are building on the rock. We are building on the rock that is Christ. So with that, I want to deal with how we should be building And I want you to remember that there are um, realms that we are called to build in. There are three realms that I want you to know that we are called to build in. Three realms. Are you ready? The first realm is the realm of home. You are called to build your home. You are called to build your home. The second realm is the realm of ministry. The third realm is the realm of marketplace. Three realms that we are called to build in. You're called to build in the realm of home. You're called to build in the realm of ministry. And you are called to build in the realm of the marketplace. These are three areas that we are called to build in. Home, ministry, and the marketplace. And those three areas are not mutually exclusive. That ministry should not be competing with your home life. But when there's an anointing on your life, and when there's a maturity on your life, you begin to realize the flow that God wants you to operate in. And when it's all said and done, God is working through you to accomplish what only he can accomplish for you and through you. And when it's all said and done, You have the mindset that if God is leading me, he's going to show me how to work all these things out for his good. In fact, he's working all things together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. And we realize that ultimately when it's all said and done, we're called to build in all these different areas, certain things that you have to be building for your home now in the midst of all of this craziness. Certain things that still have to happen in terms of ministry Because that's our assignment to serve and to build the kingdom of God. Ministry can't stop because the world is crazy because, watch this, ministry exists because the world is crazy. And if the world is decaying, we are called to be salt and light in the earth. We have the calling and the responsibility. We are first responders in a dying world, which is why... There are seasons of rest, but the seasons of rest prepare us so that we can 
mount up and do what we are called to do. There's still ministry that God wants us to accomplish in the midst of all of the craziness that's happening in our society. And then there's a calling to marketplace that you are in your career for a strategic reason. You are in your industry for a specific reason. That you were called to start a business for a divine reason, for a specific reason. That when it's all said and done, God uses all of that for his glory. And when we're immature, we tend to split and divide and segment and say, this is for God and this isn't for God and all that type of stuff. But when you are a mature believer, you realize that all of it is a part of God's divine plan and you want to step up to the challenge of honoring God in each and every one of those areas. I'm here to tell you that you are called to build. You're called to build in the realm of home. You're called to build in the realm of ministry and you're called to build in the realm of the marketplace. In order to do that, you've also got to recognize that when you build, the enemy comes to destroy. Anything that you are building in the name of Jesus, the enemy wants to destroy it because that's what he's been sent to do. That's what he comes to do. That's what he comes to do. John 10 and 10 says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came so that we can have life and life more abundantly. Jesus came so that we can have life and life more abundantly. Jesus came so that we can have abundant life, but the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Listen to me. Zoe life is often described as a God type of life. It is the state of being alive, especially in healthiness, happiness, exuberance, energy, vitality, and the like. That when you are living in Zoe life, everything is working together for your good. You realize that, you understand that. There's an energy, there is a vitality, there is a healthiness, there is a a recognition that Jesus is sourcing your life. And because of that, there is, dare I say, a glow that's on you. There are too many Christians who have no glow. Too many Christians who walk perpetually in the place of defeat. Too many Christians who are so overburdened by life that they cannot recognize the Zoe life that Jesus promised. Jesus promised you Zoe life, abundant life. He promised that to you and to me, and part of maturing in the faith is getting to the place where we can receive and allow that Zoe life to work through us. Listen to me, Zoe life is not the absence of problems and trouble. Zoe life is not about balling out of control, MTV cribs, look at my prosperity. Zoe life is first and foremost a right relationship with the Father, knowing that your salvation is secure and allowing the joy of the Lord to be your strength. So regardless of what happens in your life, you know that there's a Father in heaven that loves you. You know that he's working a plan on your behalf. And when you get that revelation in your heart, it causes you to live and to do what God has placed you in the earth to do. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came so that you can have life and life more abundantly but listen to me the enemy is not just trying to destroy your life he's trying to destroy your works Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and to destroy the devil himself that's what hell is for hell was prepared for Satan but Jesus also came to destroy the works of Satan 
And the counter to that is that the enemy wants to destroy you. He couldn't get to your soul because you got saved. Now your soul belongs to the Father in heaven. He couldn't get to your soul, but now what he wants to do is to destroy the works that are supposed to flow out of you, out of your relationship with the Lord. So if he can destroy your works and the works are designed to glorify God, then effectively he thinks that he's hindering the progress of God's plan. See, when you got saved, it wasn't just so that you could get out of hell for free. Salvation is not just soul life insurance term policy where you just know that when you leave, you got something set up for you. No, no, no. You are saved. Yes, that's justification. But then there's sanctification. There is someone that you are called to become, something that you are called to do in the earth while you are still here. And that's where most believers miss it. And they get stuck on Sunday, the Sunday morning experience. They get high off of the gathering and the worship, but then they go back home defeated. But what you get here on Sunday is to prepare you to walk in authority on Monday to accomplish your assignment on Tuesday. There are things that God has placed you in the earth to do. It's more than just getting along. It's more than just surviving. There is a thriving that's found in the Lord. The problem is we think thriving is about money and success and prosperity. No, thriving is about having an understanding of why you've been placed in the earth and being in sync with the heart and the will of the Father and walking in such a way that you know why you're here and you know what you are called to do and you're not going to allow the wiles of the enemy to hinder you from accomplishing your task and your assignment. I'm here to remind you that Jesus gives you abundant life. And when you walk in abundant life, there's nothing that can shake you to cause you to curse your God. There's nothing that can happen that can separate you from your Savior. It is being totally in lock in sync with him and his purposes and his promises and what he's called you to do. A critical component of Zoe life is work. And when I say work, you need to understand that there are things that God has placed you in the earth to do. I'm not going to walk through the text today, but in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Eventually, he creates mankind. He creates mankind in his image and in his likeness. So before we were called to do anything, we were called to be something, to be someone in his image and in his likeness, And then he blesses mankind. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful, a statement of identity as a reflection of who we are in his image. And then he says, multiply. Now I want you to do something that replicates yourself in the earth. Uh, 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 Multiply, uh, replenish, fill the earth. And when you do all these things, be fruitful, multiply, subdue, you'll have dominion. Be do and have. What you have is a result of what you do. What you do should be a reflection of who you are in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. What you have is a result of what you do. What you do is a reflection of who you are. When you understand your identity in Christ, then you begin to understand what you're called to do in view of that identity 
And when you do certain things in view of that identity, there are certain things that you now possess, that you now have as a result of the work that you're doing that God has called you to do. And there are works that God has called you to walk in from beginning of time. Before you arrived, before you got saved, before you understood what it meant to barely be walking with Jesus and to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, there are things that God assigned you to do. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are good works that God prepared for you beforehand that you should walk in. And part of maturing in Christ is beginning to make the connection that God has placed me on this earth to do these things that he's prepared for in advance. The world is trying to make up and figure out things to do. But what we do in the body of Christ is we get to know our creator and out of relationship comes the work. Watch this, in scripture, before there was a call to worship, there was a call to work. God created Adam in his image and in his likeness, placed him in the garden to tend to it, and out of a relationship with the Father, as Adam was doing what he was created to do, he glorified the Father. So there's even a place in our work where our work becomes worship because we're in tune with the one who created us. And worship, yes, is the songs that we sing, but worship is also the lifestyle that we lead. Worship is also what we do when we're at the school on Monday as an educator. Worship is what we do when we're working in fabrication and we're creating something. We're putting God's handprint on it because he's using us to reveal his glory through the work we do at that work site. Because we are ministering to people, we are witnessing to people, and what we create, we're doing it in such a way that glorifies God. Sometimes we get it twisted in terms of what we're doing because we don't fully understand who we are. That's when we get caught up in work that's not glorifying to God. But when you understand who you are, maturity, you begin to flow in the work that God has placed you in the earth to do. And you develop a laser-like focus for the things that he's placed in your hand to steward. The gardens that he's placed you to tend to. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The enemy doesn't just want to destroy you. He wants to destroy your works. If he destroys your works, then he steals glory from God. So what does that mean? There are things that people in the body of Christ are supposed to be doing, but they're not doing because the enemy has set up certain tactics that are designed to hinder the movement of God's people in the earth. And there are certain assignments that God will place us on. He will establish a church and a community for a divine apostolic assignment. And that church is called to raise up and to develop people who will go forth and accomplish their individual assignments as they have been impacted by the apostolic assignment of the church that's been placed in that community. But when life happens and people are more focused on building life, then watch this walking in Zoe life. 
when we're more focused on building our personal kingdoms rather than seeking first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and understanding that if we seek first his kingdom, then he's going to add all the other things to us. When we're not in tune and submitted to the Holy Spirit, we have missed opportunities to accomplish the assignment that God has placed us in the earth to accomplish, which is why you must stay focused. Which is why you must lock in to what the Lord is leading you to do for your home, for your ministry, and for your work in the marketplace. Which brings us to our passage for today. Now in today's passage, Nehemiah is very clearly called to a work. You can read it at home for yourself. Nehemiah chapter 1, he gets word that the walls of his community have been destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem have been burned down. At that point in time, Nehemiah works in the government. He works for a king. He is the cupbearer of the king. He is far away from his people, but he receives word. Then he gets a burden. He begins to fast. He begins to pray. God gives him favor from his boss, his employer, to go back to his community to build the walls of that community. The walls being down in Jerusalem, not only was it a spiritual matter because people felt insecure, they did not feel protected, but it was an economic issue because now the gates were down, gates, commerce come in and come out. It was an issue of protection when the walls are down and the gates are demolished then all types of adversaries and enemies can come in to destroy God's people. And so we see Nehemiah being tasked for a great work. Nehemiah has to go. He has to scope out what's happened with his community. He's got to cast a vision. He's got to get people on board to follow that vision. He's got to take the resources and pull them together and assign people to roles and responsibilities. And on top of that, he's got active adversaries that are trying to hinder him from doing what God told him to do. We know that the bigger picture is that Nehemiah had a role to play in God's greater story to preserve his people because eventually Jesus would come. And when it's all said and done, Nehemiah was playing a role in that story. But what I want to do today is I want to look at the dynamics that are at work on the ground. Because God did something for Nehemiah and through Nehemiah. But I also want us to look at the nuances of how adversaries and enemies work. And I want you to see how Nehemiah was focused, watch this, in spite of his fear. He was focused in spite of the fact that there were threats coming against him. And in today's fear saturated society, and today's culture where every single day it's some more bad news, there's something else, I want you to move beyond your fear to a place in a state of focus where regardless of what happens next, You are clear on the assignment. Is that what they say nowadays? He understood the assignment. She understood the assignment. It's time for the people of God to understand the assignment in the midst of all of this craziness. Nehemiah at this stage of scripture is almost done with the wall, but here comes some more distractions. And I want to pull out of this text four tactics that the enemy uses to keep us focused from the work, unfocused, to try to pull our focus from the work that God has called us to do. Let's walk through the text. Look at Nehemiah chapter 6, verse number 1. It says, Now it happened when Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors, 
that Sambalot and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages and the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me harm. Now, I need you to understand something. Whenever you are doing the work of the kingdom, people hear about it. Your reputation precedes you. In some respects, that's a good thing because people hear about your work. I think about Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Solomon was doing God's work, and the excellence of the work that he was doing was so great that Queen Sheba from a faraway land heard about it and had to come and see it. As she walked through, and she was overwhelmed by the excellence to the point that she sowed into Solomon's life. So there are times when we're doing the work where people that you don't even know are watching you are watching you. You ought to be so focused on your work, watch this, that you have little cousins, nieces, and nephews that are watching you from afar. You ought to be so focused on your work that there are people in your life, co-workers that are tracking you on social media. You don't even know it. That's why you can't be crazy on social media because somebody's watching you, following you. Why you can't be crazy in the break room because somebody's watching you, following you. When everybody's talking, they're looking at you to see what you're going to say. Because you become a benchmark for them. There's something about you that they measure themselves against. There's something admirable perhaps that's within you. Let's call it the anointing of God. And they're drawn to you and they may not even be able to articulate it, but there's something that's drawing them And it's the work that you are doing and the work that God is doing within you. When you are doing the work of God, people hear about it. This is a word for some of us that want to be somebody and want to go somewhere. Come on, wake up and pay attention. What progresses the agenda of God is not savvy marketing and advertising. It's not dope branding. There's a place for it. But when there's an anointing on your life, there are certain waves that are emanated in the kingdom. And people begin to hear about you because it's the spirit sending word that there's someone in the earth doing the work of the kingdom. And people will hear about you naturally, organically, because God has a way of drawing the right people to the work. I can't tell you how often I'll bump into someone. They'll be like, oh, we watch your broadcast all the time. I'm talking about other pastors. Other preachers. Why? Because there's something in this DNA and culture, something that we have as a ministry that's supposed to impact and influence other people. And you may never know the extent and the impact, but you need to know that somebody's watching and somebody's listening. So the work that Nehemiah was doing, the word was spreading throughout the land. But listen to me, it's not just friends who were hearing about it. It was also foes. You got to get ready that when you start doing the work that God has called you to do, that there are going to be some people who do not wish you well, who hear about what you're doing, who, 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 who are tracking what you're doing. And word had gotten to Nehemiah's enemies, Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem, and their enemies of God's people. And, and they heard about what he was doing. And so here's what they did. They said, hey, come on, let's meet together in the villages of the plain of Ono. So Nehemiah is with his people working on the wall, with his people doing the work, doing the work. And now here come his adversaries saying, why don't you come down the wall and let's have a little meeting. Here's the first thing I need you to understand, tactics of the enemy. The enemy will try to hinder you from work by giving you an invitation. 
Tactic one, invitation. Now, I need you to understand something about invitations. And we're going to talk about this once again. Nehemiah was a specific historical person working in a specific context, doing specific things. And and Nehemiah had a specific adversary. He had a specific work. It's recorded in the text. But there are some principles that I want to pull out of this because I want you to be ready for how the enemy operates. Sometimes the enemy will try to distract you with invitation. Some invitations are harmless and some invitations are harmful. In this case, the invitations were harmful. He knew that these people had no good for him. So what sense does it make for me to come down from the wall and stop my work when I already know the intention of your heart? Listen to me. Every invitation has an intention. Oh, you just texted me out the blue. What you want? Text me out the blue at 1 a.m. Am I stepping on some toes? I don't care. The truth will set you free. Every invitation doesn't need to be responded to. Nehemiah didn't even come down off the wall to relay the message. He sent a messenger. You go tell them, I got work to do. Because behind every invitation is an intent. And as you mature and you become discerning, The Lord will begin to reveal to you when people have malintent with the invitations that they're bringing to you. Jesus didn't respond to everything the Pharisees were doing because he knew their intent. He was very selective and strategic about how he engaged with them because certain fights and battles weren't worth fighting because once again, he had an assignment to accomplish. Behind every invitation, there is an intent. Sometimes the intent is harmful, but watch this. Sometimes the intent is harmless but it's not helpful. People will invite you to do things and it's just not your calling. And the more mature you get, the more responsibility you have, the more people are relying upon you to do what you're supposed to do, the clearer it becomes that you cannot respond to every invitation to come down off of the wall of the thing that you know God told you to do. Sometimes there will be needs in your family. I'm speaking to someone. There's a season where you help your family, and then there's a season where they need to be helped by God. There's a season where you respond to the text message. There's a season where they just need to learn how to trust in the Lord. Isn't it amazing how you get set on doing what God has called you to do, and now everybody needs something from you? But you know in your heart that there's something that God has called you to do. You know the assignment, but you keep on getting pulled down off of the wall to put out everybody else's fire. When there's a passion burning in you to do what God has called you to do. Maturity and discernment says that you can't respond to every invitation. And there are people who mean well, but that's not your fight. Every invitation has an intent. Sometimes it's harmful and sometimes it's harmless. And maturity and discernment is what you need to be able to distinguish the two. Some things are just distractions. Some things, they're good things, but they're not necessarily God things. And you need the help of the Holy Spirit to distinguish the two. So, so Nehemiah gets his invitation 
He's like, nah, I ain't <laughs> got work to do. You go tell them that I can't come down. Why should I cease in my work? Why should the work cease so I can come down to you? But look at verse number four. They sent this message four times. And four times Nehemiah said, no. Here's the second strategy of the enemy. Insistence. Insistence. People just insense, insist, right? Insistence. I, I, please just take a meeting with me. Please just come down and have this conversation. But Nehemiah was so locked into his purpose, watch this, that the persistence of those wanting the meeting did not deter him from doing what he knew the Lord had called him to do. I want to help some of you out because some of you think that persistence is confirmation. I kept bumping into him at the grocery store, bumping into him. God must be trying to tell me something. We count repetition as confirmation. This is all the ah, 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 ah. It happened three times. No wisdom, no discernment. Life controlling prophecies. Because the enemy is persistent too. And we have to mature just because something happens over and over again doesn't mean that it's necessarily something that God is calling to you pursue. Oh, I keep on getting these credit card offers in the mail, so I think the Lord is speaking to me and telling me to take a step of faith and to use the... the did God say that? Because that sounds like advertising to me. Advertising is persistent. Something you want. I know I want a new brand, t- brand new TV. And you spoke it and you searched it one time. Now everywhere you go, the TV is following you. It must be a sign from the Lord. No, no, that's called the algorithm. <laughs> Don't we do that? And we say, oh, two times, three times, girl, that's confirmation. Not necessarily. Four times they were persistent with the same Seemingly, seemingly harmless offer. Just come down, have a conversation. All this is a conversation. But Nehemiah understood the assignment. Sometimes there are things in your life that will come back around full circle. And we think it's a theme. Just because it's a theme doesn't mean that it's a theme that comes from God. Yes, there's certain themes that God will bring up and again in your life and he gives you confirmation that it's of God and there's a peace about what you're stepping into. But the enemy, watch this, knows your cycles better than you know them. He has a file on you. He's been watching you since the day you were born, analyzing how you move, what your temperament is. He's got demons and imps that are recording data on a regular basis to see how you move and how you flow. So just because something shows up again and again, there's temptation to show up again and again, but it's not confirmation that you should go through that door. So we have to be mature and persistence doesn't necessarily mean confirmation. And there's sometimes people want you to do stuff and they are persistent, but you have to stay focused on what God told you to do. They asked over and over again, over and over again, and Nehemiah gave him the same answer, no. So his adversaries are like, okay, let's, let's, let's shift the strategy. Look at verse number five. 
Then Sambalot sent his servant to me as before. The fifth time, with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. The third tactic that the enemy will use to cause you to stop your work is insinuation. Insinuation. They were insinuating that Nehemiah wasn't really building this wall for the glory of God. He was building this wall to build his own kingdom. They were insinuating that Nehemiah had alternative motives in what he was building. You want to know what the definition of insinuation is? Insinuation is to instill doubt and distrust by suggesting something that may or may not be true. Oh, you ain't got time for us no more. Who you think you are? Oh, you too important now. You too busy doing your little thing. Be careful, people that call your thing a little thing. Your, your little thing. You do your. I see you got your little your little thing going on. Your little business going on. I see you too big for the little people now. Insinuation. Now, insinuation sometimes it is a matter of misunderstanding, but when it's malicious, it's a matter of mischaracterization. Sometimes people just can't understand what you're called to do because they have no scope or no scale for it. And you just got to let them live in the tension of not understanding what you got to do. You just got to let them live in the tension of maybe they just can't understand. I love them, but they just don't understand. And so you're going to pray for them and let them be where they are. But you still got to do what God has called you to do. See, when you were younger, you showed up to every event, you showed up to every cookout, you came to every special this, every special that, but you're maturing. You have more weight, more responsibility. There is a burden that God has placed on your heart, and you have to do what God has called you to do now. And the lowest form of response is for people to begin, because of their misunderstanding of you, to say, oh, you've changed. Yes, I have. I know what God has called me to do. I'm clear on my assignment. And some people, as lovely as they are, as wonderful as they are, they just won't understand. So you have to leave them be. But then there's a category of people, they are actively trying to miscategorize what you're doing because they have malintent. They spread rumors about what you're doing because they don't want to see it come to pass. Because you stand for something that's against what they stand for. And rather than them growing and maturing, they'd rather just throw mud on what you're doing. Insinuation. So, okay, all right. All right, Nehemiah. Let's play it this way. You know, word on the street is you try to set up your own kingdom. Watch this. And we're going to help you. Come on, come talk to us. And we could talk through it so we can help you out. And Nehemiah was like, nope. Look at what Nehemiah says in verse number eight. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you can say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. 
The enemy, Satan, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, he will accuse you with the goal of getting in your head and getting in your heart to cause you to think things about yourself that are not true. If I've been justified by the blood of Jesus and redeemed by the Lamb, and the enemy comes in to accuse me otherwise, that's in direct violation of what God has said. But what he does is he tries to get in your head, because if he can get in your head, he can get in your heart. If he can get in your heart, he can halt the progress of what's being built against his kingdom of darkness. But you have to be so, listen to me, in tune with the Father. So, watch this, clear about your own intentions. You have to resolve why you're doing what you're doing. And if you're truly doing it because God commissioned you to do it, if you're truly doing it because of humility, and you're doing it because you want to serve God, and you want to accomplish what he's called you to do, then don't allow the insinuation of adversaries and enemies to cause you to start tripping against yourself. When you know in your heart that's not why you're doing what you're doing. Nehemiah knew, no, this is a burden from the Lord. They have invented that in their heart. He was able to clarify, and then he saw the tactic, verse number nine, for they were all trying to make us afraid, saying to themselves, their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. You see how the adversary uses fear to try to weaken the work. Too many people in the body of Christ are scourged. Scared, living in perpetual fear, living afraid. Fear weakens the work. And what your adversary is betting on is that if I put enough fear in the life of a believer, then they'll just give up. They'll stop making progress. They'll stop doing what God assigned them and the work to do. Because if, if I can't destroy them, I'll destroy their works. But Nehemiah had a relationship with the Lord. He said, now therefore, oh God, strengthen my hands. You got to be able to pray in real time when discouragement comes and people say things that are against your character, you have to realign yourself with prayer. Lord, strengthen my hands. Lord, I know I'm doing this because you called me to do it. Lord, I know my heart is pure before you. Therefore, strengthen my hands to finish what you commissioned me to do. So Nehemiah strengthened himself and continued the work, but his adversaries weren't done yet. Look at verse number 10. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mahedabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God. Let us meet together in the house of God and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night, they will come to kill you. The fourth tactic the enemy will use is infiltration. See, they sent an invitation and Nehemiah rejected it. They began to insinuate that maybe, just maybe, Nehemiah didn't have pure intentions. And he didn't fall for that. They were insistent in trying to get him to meet, and he realized they would not get a meeting with him. And so what they did is they said, come on, let's find somebody that knows him. Let's make them an informer. Let's plant them 
in the intimate places of Nehemiah. We know he spends time worshiping the Lord. So let's get someone that can convince him to retreat to the temple. Let me use a familiar language of spirituality. Let let me use, watch this, the one thing that Nehemiah has working for him against him. Let me try to flip that. You remember Daniel, how Daniel was blameless? How Daniel did what he was supposed to do? How Daniel resisted the call to worship Nebuchadnezzar? And they couldn't get Daniel on his work because he was so excellent. They couldn't get him on the work that he was doing. So what did they try to do? They tried to attack his faith. And they set him up based on his patterns of worship. They knew enough about Nehemiah to know that Nehemiah was a worshiping man. And no, he couldn't resist coming to the temple. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to send a plant. We're going to infiltrate and we're going to send someone and we're going to get that person to distract Nehemiah, to pull him down from the wall so we can halt the work. Infiltration. Sometimes infiltration is harmful in intent and harmless. Sometimes there are strategic people that have been placed in the work that you're called to do who are praying against the work. And they get enough proximity to get some data to see what you're doing. And they're actively going back and gossiping and slandering your name and talking about what you're doing. They have infiltrated the camp. But sometimes the most difficult infiltration is the unknown infiltration. Where someone is being used unaware. And if you're not careful, you'll be a host to infiltrate and try to hinder the work that God has called someone else to do. Come here, Peter. Peter, on this rock, I built my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Peter, Peter had a high moment where he, he, he answered correctly that you are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, on this rock, I built my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It was an iconic moment for the body of Christ, the establishment of the church. And just a few scriptures later, Jesus was continuing to the cross and Peter was trying to hinder him And Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. He rebuked him. If Satan can influence Peter, who was with the son of God, after he had just rightly acknowledged him as the son of God, how much more can the enemy influence people to try to hinder what God is doing in the life of a person? Infiltration. Sometimes he'll get in a spouse. Sometimes he'll get in a coworker. He'll get in a family member. He'll work, work on them because of misunderstanding and conflict. The enemy will use that person or use the situation involving that person. Once again, it can be completely harmless. But the enemy is using it for the intent of stopping the work that God has called a person to do. And we have to be careful because we can be susceptible. Saying things out of the flesh that God then lead us to say in the spirit. Speaking against things, Jesus had to go through the cross. Peter said, no, nah, it ain't going down like that. I rebuke you, Satan, because I know what the father told me I had to go through. Sometimes people in your family don't want to see you go through pain, but the pain is necessary for you to become who God has called you to become. So you have to stick with what God said versus what their intentions and their desires are for you. They sent an informant. And he started talking, and once again, Nehemiah is processing what he's saying. 
He's processing what he's saying. And, and, and the dude is telling them, we need to go to the house of the Lord. Let's go to the temple. That's a safe place. They're coming to kill you. And, and they will come to kill you. And Nehemiah is thinking about what the Lord commissioned him to do. And he's saying, wait a minute. Verse 11, should such a man as I flee? I'm leading these people. I brought them to this place. We're almost done with the wall. We've had threats before. Why should I give up now and run away? And who is there such as I would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then he got a revelation in verse number 12. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. Sometimes the enemy will send a lying prophet. Someone who has not been sent by God, motivated by money. And how many believers have been derailed from what God really told them to do because of some prophet with a financial interest telling them things that God did not say. And they moved immediately rather than testing the spirit by the spirit. Nehemiah tested the spirit by the spirit. He processed what that dude was saying. He's like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. And then revelation came. He perceived that he was not sent by God and that he had been a plant that was hired once again to stop the work. The enemy will even use false prophecy to hinder the work of God and the advancement of his kingdom. So at this point, Nehemiah understands the varied assaults of his adversaries. So verse 14, he ends with this prayer. My God, remember Tobiah and Sambalot according to these works and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have made me afraid. All of these tactics were to incite fear. To make Nehemiah afraid. But Nehemiah refused to stop the work. In other words, Nehemiah was saying, I'm too focused to be afraid. I'm too focused to be afraid. I'm too focused to be afraid. Did you know there's another COVID variant? What letter of the Greek alphabet is it now? Okay, I'm going to take it to the Lord in prayer. I'm too focused to be afraid. I went to the doctor and it seems like my blood pressure is high. Pray, ask for wisdom. What am I supposed to do? A, B, and C. But I'm too focused to be afraid. Don't allow the diagnosis to become your detriment. Some people get a diagnosis of cancer and they sit down and they die. Other people, they get it. They take it to the Lord in prayer, take their medicine, and they continue to live. I'm too focused to be afraid. A new financial challenge. I'm too focused to be afraid. I'm too focused to be afraid. Fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. Likely to cause pain or a threat. Now, everything that we are afraid of 
is actualized. And when we are anxious, we have an anxiety about things that have happened or may happen. And when you are wracked by anxiety, it hasn't even happened yet, but just the thought of something happening keeps you up at night. But Jesus said, be anxious for nothing. The Apostle Paul said it in the book of Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but with all things in prayer and supplication, make your requests known. There's a strategy in the prayer. There's a strategy in the worship. The strategy is that when I'm overwhelmed, when I'm afraid, I can go to the Lord, I can pray, I can make my supplication. He refuels me and refills me and allows me to get back out there to do what I'm called to do. I'm too focused to be driven by fear in this society in 2022. So no matter what happens, I'm going to do what God has called me to do. He's going to give me wisdom regarding how to do it. He's going to show me who to connect with and who not to connect with. But the one thing I'm depending on is my focus on him. I must fix my eyes upon the author and the finisher of my faith. I have to stay locked into Jesus. Because there's someone that I'm becoming and there's something that God has called me to do and there's something he's doing in my home and my household for my children and for my family. There's something he's doing in the ministry that I've been planted in. There's something that he's doing in the industry or the career path that he has given me and I want to be so in tune with his voice that the voice of another I will not follow. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd and the voice of the shepherd should always be louder than the hirelings. It should always be louder than the wolves and sheep clothing. We must attune our voices and our ears to the voice of the shepherd. Attune our ears to the voice of the shepherd, but we also have to tune our voice to cry out because when we cry out, he hears our prayers. I'm too focused to be afraid. Here's how fear works. You hear something go bump in the night. You anticipate harm. You freeze. The signal travels to the base of your brain. This fires a brain chemical reaction called glutamate out of two other regions of the brain. The first region causes us to freeze or involuntarily jump. The second signal is sent to the hypothalamus and it triggers our automatic nervous system responsible for fight or flight mode. It elevates our heart rate and our blood pressure. It pumps adrenaline throughout our bodies, non-essential functions in order to give the body as much resources as necessary to run or to fight. Fight, flight, or freeze is usually the options that you have when you have fear. But I'm adding another one. It's called focus. <laughs> Fight, flight, or freeze. But we're going to stay focused on what God has called us to do. And we're going to get beyond our initial feelings to stay locked into what God said and what he placed us in the earth to do. The assignment that's on hand and on deck. Repeat after me. I'm choosing focus over fear I'm choosing focus over fear in order for me to become what God has called me to be in 2022 I have to get focused and the enemy is sending all types of distractions but I'm asking the Lord to help my concentration according to the things that he has outlined for me to do. The definition of focus means to concentrate attention or effort on the most pressing needs. I am going to be so focused on what God is saying, what he's calling me to do. I'm too focused to be afraid. Fear might catch me for a second, 
but then I'm going to remember the Lord and all of his precious promises. Fear might grip me for just a moment, but then I'm going to begin to pull from a hymn, a song, a scripture. I'm going to strengthen myself in the Lord. I might start off afraid, but I'm not going to stay there. I'm going to be anointed even in the midst of my fear. In fact, it's when I lean in and lean past my fears that God begins to do exceedingly and abundantly in my life. When you begin to challenge your fears, when you begin to look them dead in the eye and declare that you will not allow those fears to hinder you from doing what God has called you to do, it builds something in you. It does something to you psychologically. Any psychologist will tell you that the only way to overcome fear is to confront it. And when you confront it, you begin to condition your mind that yes, you can do this. Yes, there is a possibility, but just because it's a possibility that one thing will happen doesn't mean that it's going to happen. I'm here to declare to you today that some of the things that the enemy has spoken over your life, the threats and the declarations that certain things are going to happen. Don't you ever forget that the devil is a liar. You ought to tell him right now, you're a liar from the pit of hell. The enemy's been whispering stuff in your ears, stuff that did not come from God. Let's get mature in this hour and begin to discern. Nope, that's the voice of the enemy. That's the voice of the Lord. That's the Lord telling me to hold back. But that's the enemy telling me to go for it. No, no, that's the, that's the Lord telling me to go for it. You have to discern his voice. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. And in this hour, we have to be focused. I'm focused. I'm focused, man. I'm too focused to be afraid. Focus over fear. Focus over fear. Focus over fear. Because if it's not one thing today, it's something else tomorrow. But I still have work to do. I might have to adapt my strategy. But I still have to accomplish what God has called me to do. Because I'm locked in. To what God is saying. There's a place in psychology, a focus called the flow state. The flow state is also known as the zone. The flow state is when you're in a state of completely being immersed in an activity that requires intense focus. Steph Curry, one of the greatest shooters of all time gets into a place where he's not overthinking the practice, the challenging, the work done in the gym, after hours, early in the morning. He's been stretched in his point of skill. Muscle memory kicks in. And when he's in the zone, he's not thinking about the crowd. He's not thinking about the opposing players on the team. He's just doing what he was created to do. The flow state. The skill matches up with the focus. And he's doing things and his energy is so focused. The attention is so great. His brain is so connected to the movement of his body and the task at hand. It's almost like he's unconscious. Shooting shots and turning around and even looking at the basket. Flow state. There's a flow state that we can find in our work. A flow state that we can find. And skills like athletics, but I'm here to tell you that when it comes to doing the work of God, there's a flow state that the people of God have to find. But we are so in line with God, his heart, the work that he's called us to do. We are fully immersed. We feel energized, focused, full involvement, enjoyment of the process and the activity. We are doing what we are created to do. But if you even want to get close to achieving a flow state, there's some things that have to be in place. Certain things that you have to acknowledge with this flow state. You need to understand that there are distractions external and distractions internal. Mm 
external distractions, your phone, notifications, people calling you, texting you, social media, pinging you, things that draw your attention off of the task at hand. If there's any hope to get into a flow state, you have to eliminate those notifications, those pings, and have a singular focus of what's in front of you. Not every invitation is something that you respond to. Sometimes accessibility and availability can be to your detriment. I long for the days where not just anybody could hit me on Messenger. (laughs) I'd be getting requests from people I don't even know. I can't respond to everything. Now people don't want to call the office. They just want to hit you. If I spent every single day responding to every ping, every notification, right then in the spot, I can't get into a flow space. State. You feeling what I'm saying? First natural, then spiritual. There's a place where you have to focus on what God is saying. And you have to quiet all of those notifications. Spirit realm. So you can get in the flow of what God is calling you to do. But it's not just external distractions. They're the internal distractions. It's the self-doubt. The reconsideration, am I supposed to be doing this? It's the internalization of the fear that's been planted in your heart by the adversary. Nehemiah wrestled with fear, but every single time he wrestled with fear, he came back to the conclusion that this is a tactic of my adversaries to hinder me from doing what God has called me to do. And he reaffirmed what the Lord had placed on his heart to do. External and internal distractions. You have to focus in this season. Some of us are so scattered. We will not see any sustained results until we learn how to focus on the one, the two, the three things that God has placed us with responsibility to do. Some of, the, some of you, this is your year to focus on one church. You hop and you bounce, and before there could even be in a momentum, you find a reason to, to, to split or to get ticked off. And God is saying, if I could just get you to, to just lock in. See, the thing about this flow state, it just doesn't happen overnight because you say, I want to be in a flow state. No, no. Certain things you bring to the table. There's, there's a commitment to skill that you bring to the table when it comes to a flow state. Preconditions to a flow state. One, you have to be committed to embrace risk. Secondly, you have to have a commitment to develop skills. And third, you must have a growth mindset. See, Steph Curry didn't just wake up one day and start shooting it from the logo. What you see on the court is the result of hours of sacrifice, skill development, repetition, doing the same things over and over and over, and over, and over, and over. Some of us are not achieving what we could because we love novelty. We're energized by something new. That's why we can't hold down a relationship because people become old to us real quick. 
driven by novelty. You got the iPhone 12 and you just need the 13. The grass is always greener on the other side. And God is saying, can you be square and stable? Christ is the cornerstone. That's what we're building upon, right? The cornerstone in a stone building is the first and most critical stone that's laid. If you want a solid foundation, the cornerstone must be square and stable. Square meaning it must be perfectly at a 90 degree angle. If it's not at a 90 degree angle, that small variance of degree can set the foundation off and you'll build the house and it looks nice for about three minutes, but then you start seeing cracks in the walls and the walls are spreading and it creates all these other issues because you did not build on a square foundation. Square and stable, it's gotta be stable enough to hold the weight of the structure. Jesus is our cornerstone, square and stable. We must build upon that cornerstone, but watch this. Sometimes the things that God calls us to build are square and stable. When someone's a square, they're not always impressive. They're not always trendy. But I take someone that's square and stable over someone that's crooked and double-minded. But in today's culture, people will follow someone that's crooked and double-minded because of the novelty. It's a strange dynamic. People don't want character anymore. The flash and the dash and they're drawn by all types of weird, weird things. Even in the church, hooping and hollering is a weird fixation, shouting and who has the fastest feet and the best shout and that stuff is played out. Why are we enamored by that? And yet we have no Zoe life, no work to show for our relationship with the Lord. We got to build some things. You can shout, outrun everybody around the sanctuary, but your, your house is ragged. More invested in your footwork and seeing and being seen and putting the appearance that you got something going on. No, no, you got to do the work. Sometimes doing the work means that everybody doesn't see you because you're doing the work, the development. The skill, the repetition, over and over and over and over and over again. People celebrate Steph Curry for the achievement and the milestones, but they weren't there when he was in the gym and nobody else was there. So listen to me. In building something, we're not building something overnight because we're going to be wise builders. The foolish builders skip over the foundation and just start putting stuff up that looks good. No, no, we're going to be wise builders. There's a foundation that's being laid. Remember, all this is being led by the Spirit of God, but I believe this in my heart of hearts. I'll say it again. You must build your home. You must build in ministry. You must build in the marketplace. God is giving us a grace to address those areas, particularly through the expression of this church and this ministry. Because when it's all said and done, we might be in Babylon, but you can be blessed in Babylon. There might be an earthquake. You can't stop the earthquake. You can't prevent it. You can't control it. But you can build something that outlasts it. 
Father, I thank you for what you're doing in the life of our church. Father, I'm too focused to be afraid. I speak that over every person under the sound of my voice, that they would walk away from this moment knowing, dear God, that there's a place of focus in you. It can only be found in you. Where they are so engaged with what you've placed them in the earth to do that they don't allow the Sambalots, the Tobiases, and the Geshems, dear God, to pull them off of the wall. They don't allow external distractions or even internal distractions to hinder them from performing the task at hand. Help us to find our flow state as a ministry, as a church, and as individuals. Tomorrow, many people have tasks that they must accomplish because you've commissioned them to do certain things. I pray, Father, that when fear begins to raise his ugly head, that they will be willing to God to acknowledge it and call it what it is and say, I'm too focused to be afraid. They focus on raising their kids. I'm speaking right now, dear God, to a parent that's overwhelmed by finances and overwhelmed by job insecurity and overwhelmed by spousal difficulties and fear is creeping into their heart for the sake of their kids and what they need to provide for their children, dear God. They make this declaration, I'm too focused to be afraid. Their fear, dear God, will be overcome by an intense focus on the things that you've called them to do. Father, I speak, dear God, over husbands and wives, dear God, who sometimes get so focused on the nitpicking and this versus that and what she didn't do or what he didn't do, that they would be so in tune with what you called them to build together that there would be almost a godly realignment, dear God, that just overwhelms them, that brings them to the place where they focus on the main thing. For areas of ministry, dear God, where people have drifted, dear God, Father, would you bring and raise up a population of people who recognize that there's still calling, there's still authority that you're dispensing in the earth, there still are assignments, anointings that you give to people to accomplish certain assignments. And there's still a divine work that you're doing in the land through your church. And that requires people who are committed to ministry, to service, to rise up and to do those things. Father, you're still calling us to build walls in the midst of destruction. Father, you're still releasing people into the marketplace. Like Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, priest, king, dear God. There's work in the house and there's work, dear God, in the marketplace. Give us the mindset to be able to accomplish both. Father, when it's all said and done, our declaration is that we will not be afraid. Fear will not overtake us. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.